You are Locked On Marlins, your daily podcast on the Miami Marlins, part of the Locked On Podcast Network, your team every day. This is the Locked On Marlins podcast, your go-to podcast on all things Miami Marlins. As always, I'm your host, Arm Layton. I'm a longtime Marlins writer, as well as the founder of JustBaseball.com. And in today's episode, we're going to talk about Jesus Lizardo and the major improvements he has made across his last three starts, what I've really seen there and what I've been impressed with. Also, just the Marlins' performance over the last few games, what some of my takeaways are, some of the positives, obviously, in yesterday's game against the Mets, the Marlins continue to play spoiler and have actually played pretty well over the last week. They pick up a victory again here against the Mets. I also wanted to talk about Sandy Alcantara, who had the best start of his career two days ago, where he punched out 14. When it comes to Sandy, there really is no excuse for the Marlins not to extend this guy. I think that they will do it. I really do. And you know, I'm not the most optimistic when it comes to Marlins spending, but that's one that I actually think they're going to do. And hopefully they'll be able to get a deal done there. It seems like Sandy likes being in Miami. Obviously the Marlins have helped him get to where he is. He's incredibly talented, but he's also come a long way. And hopefully uh, there's a deal to be had there in the off season. Might as well just finish the season, finish strong and Sandy has been fantastic overall this year. Aside from a couple blow-up starts against the Dodgers, I think if you remove those Dodgers starts, his ERA in the one Philly start, his ERA would be uh, among some of the best in the league. And in terms of his overall numbers, he really is putting up ace type of stat lines, which is really encouraging. And like I've said in the past, for the Marlins to have somebody like Sandy, who you know what you're getting, all the time, and then you might even get a little bit more. I mean, those blow-up starts are so rare from him. He's so consistent, and even when he's off, he's going to give you six innings. I think he's gone six-plus in 23 of his starts this year out of 29, and the thing is, even when he's given up those three, four runs in a shaky start, he's not going to kill your bullpen. He's still going to give you six, and there's so much value to that, especially in today's game. You just don't see it. I'd venture to say that as long as Sandy Alcantara stays healthy and the seasons are normal seasons, you can pretty much pencil him in for 200 innings a year, and there's not really many pitchers you can say that about in today's game. But I wanted to talk about yesterday's game first, because Jesus Lizardo was spectacular. If you follow me on Twitter, you saw some of the tweets that I had about his numbers and about what he has been able to do. The trade deadline was roughly a month and 10 days ago. And in a month and 10 days ago, I was super amped about this Jesus Lazardo trade. After that, he made a few bad starts. Definitely a few bad starts. His first start as a Marlin, he was able to compete and got away with some stuff and ended up turning in a decent outing, but he was rocky the subsequent three starts, and a lot of people started to say, hey, what's going on here? This guy doesn't look like he has it, and that's normal. I expect fan reaction like that. I was a bit surprised to see some media members overall just so quick to pounce on the kid. Local kid, 23 years old, Some of the best stuff you're going to see from a young starting pitcher in the game, and honestly, stuff that rivals any pitcher in the game period as a starter, and I'll get into that in a minute to back it up with some of the numbers, but just a triple digits fastball that has not been commanded as well as it should be, and and hopefully he'll get there. 
a curveball that's as good as any in the game, a changeup that when he locates it is spectacular and backed up by the whiff rates. And when I look at all of that stuff, I'm like, okay, this kid has the stuff to put it together. The Marlins have really done a great job of developing arms, and I'm willing to bet on that, and I think the Marlins are too. I feel very good about the overall acquisition, and I think the last couple starts should make fans feel a lot better. As for yesterday's stat line, Luzardo went five and two thirds, two hits. And by the way, both of those hits were by Javi Baez. So only one hitter really had his number in that game. Four walks, but he scattered them well enough. Eight strikeouts and the one home run to Javi Baez. Of course, I'd like to see the walks go down a little bit. Three to two a game would be a little bit better. But four, given that he has been a lot more erratic in his last few outings. You got to build on that. And again, he's been able or he was able in that outing to scatter the walks a bit more. Now over his last three outings, adding that one in, he's gone 17 and a thirds innings, pitched to a 2.63 ERA, 19 Ks, eight hits, and seven walks. Obviously, seven walks and 17 and a thirds is not ideal. It's better, but the 19 Ks and the 2.63 ERA, only giving up eight hits in those 17 innings. Really, the, the problem is not Lizardo's stuff, as we've talked about. It's really about allowing the stuff to play, and that's because he falls behind quite often. And when he falls behind, I think he was falling behind a majority of hitters the last few outings before he hit this three start stride and they can sit on that fastball and we know 100 miles an hour doesn't matter when they know it's coming or 96 97 whatever it is that he's throwing when hitters don't have to worry about Lazardo's changeup because they know he's not locating it you can eliminate that pitch so essentially you're only worried about a curveball and a fastball when he's not locating that changeup which was the problem over those last few outings and the curveball at times it's a bit shaky too so if you're ahead in the count you know he might not go to that curveball and you're just sitting dead red fastball. That's exactly why he was getting hit. It's not really a matter of his fastball not being good enough either. It's just that hitters were able to key on it and eliminate other pitches because sometimes in those outings, his other pitches, he would have one or two pitches that just were not usable or were not even close to the zone. And in my head, I'm thinking if I'm a hitter, if he locates that after spiking it three times, I'll tip my cap and I'm going to sit on the fastball. And that's exactly what was happening to him. But I have loved what we've seen from Lazardo, And the last thing I just want to say on the narrative front before I get into some of the more advanced numbers on Lazardo, I just want people to not group in this move or Lazardo's development with some of the other things that are going on with this franchise. Like, yes, they've made some bad moves. And yes, there have been some frustrating things that this team has done. Trust me, I'm as frustrated as anybody. I got to talk about it all the time on this podcast. That being said, if there's one thing that this team does well, it's develop pitching. We've seen it time and time again. It already goes back to Sandy Alcantara. He had major command issues. The Marlins sent him down in his rookie season. Because of those command issues, because of the lack of swing and miss despite his triple digits fastball, it's it's somewhat reminiscent. It is. Obviously, his command issues weren't as egregious as Lizardo, but I'd argue that Lizardo's stuff is actually better than Sandy's was at that point in his career in the first big league season of his. I, I really do think that, especially with the breaking ball. So I just really hope that especially media members do not group this in and just keep highlighting bad starts by Lizardo as another reason to slam the Marlins front office. They give you more than enough reasons already. You don't need to be looking for immediate results from Jesus Lizardo. And if those immediate results from an incredibly toolsy 23-year-old pitcher don't come right away, then you are going to jump and pile on and say, here's his terrible stat line over the last whatever, whatever. I just don't think that that does any good for anybody. 
This isn't the same as putting a catcher in left field. This isn't the same as sending your first base prospect who's been raking up and down every single month. It's not the same as even leaving out Isan Diaz and Lewis Brinson and all these other guys to just continue to struggle out there. Magnera Sierra. It's not the same as all that. So let's be patient in this instance and let's not lump them all together. But let's get back to the curveball now because the curveball is utterly spectacular. And the big number from yesterday's outing, 23 whiffs for Jesus Lizardo. 23. I know it's the Mets and they love to whiff, especially with Javi Baez, but Javi Baez was the one dude that wasn't whiffing. Lizardo was getting guys like Lindor, who's a switch hitter and doesn't K an egregious amount. Even Dom Smith, who has better splits against lefties. He pulled up with three Ks. I think two of them were at the hands of Lizardo, if I'm not mistaken. Pete Alonso K'd. Like, there were several guys that just were very uncomfortable that you would expect maybe would be a bit more comfortable. I know it's left on left, but look at Dom Smith's splits. Very surprising there. And Lindor has been better at times from the right side. So I was very encouraged overall with this start. And I wanted to highlight the curveball period because over the course of the year, despite the struggles, that pitch has been fantastic for him. And now he's starting to throw it more. He's phased the fastball out a little bit and he's incorporating the curveball in a bit more. If he can start harnessing that changeup, he's going to be a problem because those two pitches are ridiculous when it comes to whiffs. 10 whiffs on that curveball yesterday. And when we look at whiff rate over the course of the season so far among qualified pitchers, which means at least 250 pitches, these are the highest curveball whiff percentages in major league baseball among relievers and starters who have thrown 250 pitches. Number one, Craig Kimbrell. He has been utterly unhittable this year. Number two, Corbin Burns. Same freaking story. Number three is Jesus Lazardo. Kimbrell's at 58% whiff rate. Corbin Burns at 49% whiff rate. Jesus Lazardo at 48.1% whiff rate. Number four is Blake Snell. And we know how good that breaking ball is at a 47.4% whiff rate. Number five, a guy that's very similar to Jesus Lazardo, but maybe not even quite the same caliber of stuff, but has nasty secondary stuff and does get a lot of swings and misses when he's commanding and stuff. But Tristan McKenzie's number five there at a 45.3% whiff rate on the breaking ball. That's really darn good company. Kimbrell, Burns, Lazardo, Snell, McKenzie. That is crazy. And that's just a testament to how good the stuff is. This isn't a small sample size. This is a pretty sizable deal here of pitches. The crazy thing too is that Lizardo's changeup is also racking up a crazy whiff rate as well at 36%, which puts him among the top in the big leagues as well, especially for starting pitchers. The thing is, is he just has not located it all the time. So he'll miss that spot and it'll get smashed at times. It's not because it's not a good pitch. It's because it's an 87 mile an hour changeup that at times is at the belt instead of at the knees. And even if it has a good movement to it, there's guys that are going to be able to hit that, and he's given up four home runs on that pitch. The slugging is at 522, yet the whiff rate is at 36%. So this is a pitch that will be able to play if he sets it up well, if he tunnels better, and if he continues to command better. But my goodness, you're already seeing the whiff rates, and if he starts to throw more strikes, it's an if, but I think that the Marlins can help him get there, and we've already seen it. This is a guy that could be really darn good, and I think we're starting to see flashes of what he's capable of and why the Marlins wanted him and why he was a top prospect. As for the Marlins offense in this game, not what I expected. 
I did not expect four of the seven Marlins hits to come from Sandy Leone and Isan Diaz. Technically, five of the seven hits came from Lewis Brinson, pinch hitter, and then Diaz and Leone. That's pretty crazy. As for the rest of the lineup, we saw a hit from Miggy Rowe. We saw a homer from Jazz Chisholm, who hit one just a mile. One for four from Chisholm. Two RBI on the homer, no Ks, really encouraging there. I wanted to discuss a little bit about Chisholm, who is probably not quite going to get there. 15 home runs, 19 stolen bases, but he is getting close to a 2020 season with not that much volume. Only 380 at-bats, 416 plate appearances because of the time that he missed this year due to injury. And he's had a bit of an up and down year, right? Like he has definitely had some cold streaks and he has had some really nice hot streaks. He's a rookie and a toolsy rookie and that's to be expected. But I want to talk about some of the things that he needs to do to take that next step next year and what we can expect from him moving forward. All of that and also some highlights on the farm, some interesting players that have impressed me, both pitchers and hitters. All of that coming up in just a moment. And of course, I still got to talk about Sandy. Before I get there, a reminder that this episode is brought to you in part by... Freshly, dinner time can be chaotic, but with Freshly, it's easy. Their chefs take care of your meals a few nights a week and they take the pressure off of you. Are you stressed, tired, or just don't feel like cooking? Food that's fast doesn't have to be fast food. Freshly offers quality meals without the hard work of prepping, cooking, or cleaning. Freshly offers chef-made, nutrient-packed, delicious meals delivered fresh to your door. No cooking required. Grocery shopping and cooking can be a pain, especially right now. And with Freshly, you don't have to. Your meals arrive cooked and fresh every single week and you can keep them in your fridge stocked or skip the trip to the store. Ordering is easy. All you have to do is visit Freshly.com and choose from over 30 delicious, satisfying, better for you meals like steak, peppercorn, sausage, baked penne, or their chicken pesto bowl. Freshly can fit your lifestyle with a variety of plans and meals to pick from that work for your dietary needs, preferences, tastes, and family size. Right now, if you go to Freshly, our listeners can get Freshly for $6.16 per meal. Stop searching the internet for healthy food near me every night and start living life freshly. Right now, if you go to Freshly.com slash LockedOn, you'll get $40 off your first two orders. Going to Freshly.com slash LockedOn, you'll get $40 off your first two orders. That's Freshly.com slash LockedOn for $40 off your first two orders. Also brought to you in part by Wealthfront. Decades of data show that investors who trade individual stocks underperform the market every single year. In fact, only 1% of day traders beat the market. The odds are not in your favor if you're doing it alone. Team up with Wealthfront instead. Investing can be complicated, but whether you're a beginner or you've been investing for years, Wealthfront makes it easy. They have the right tools for every portfolio. Wealthfront can create a portfolio of globally diversified, low-cost index funds personalized just for you in minutes. No manual trades, no picking stocks, no watching the stock market every single day. They automatically handle all the investing based on preferences you control. Wealthfront is trusted with over $20 billion of assets, and you can get your first $5,000 managed for free by going to Wealthfront.com slash LockedOnMLB. That's Wealthfront.com slash LockedOnMLB to get your first $5,000 managed for free. So let's get back to this Marlins discussion here. We wrapped up Lizardo. We're going to talk about Sandy and we're going to talk about Jazz Chisholm and the farm. As far as I'm concerned, this outing right here by Sandy is as good of an outing as we've seen in his entire career. And what's funny is you look at the pitch usage and it's a little bit reminiscent of Lizardo going to the breaking ball more than any other pitch as Sandy continues to feel it a bit more. He throws the slider in that outing 
34% of the time. So 39 of his 114 pitches were sliders. I don't think the Mets were ready for this version of Sandy Alcantara. And I always talk about how this makes a pitcher so tough is you don't know what look you're going to get. You're preparing to see a ton of changeups and he only throws 17 of them. They were effective. He didn't get hit around with the changeup, but he just decided not to go to it as much in that outing. He goes to the slider more and he racks up 27 whiffs in that outing. 114 pitches, 27 whiffs. He went nine innings. Doesn't get the win because the Marlins hate giving Sandy Alcantara runs, but he also topped out at the highest VLO pitch of his career at 101.5 miles per hour. As his command continues to improve and he's hitting those triple digits, he's almost starting to look like a DeGrom light. I'm not saying he's actually going to be DeGrom, but there is a little bit of that DeGrom light because there's nobody throwing that hard as a starter going deep into games and throwing as many strikes as Sandy is. The difference with DeGrom is that he's spotting it and that his slider and changeup are just otherworldly, but Sandy's slider is clearly taking some major strides this year. He just showed it in that last outing by getting nine whiffs on the slider, nine whiffs on the sinker, seven whiffs on the four-seamer, and then two whiffs on the changeup as well. He is getting elite with the tunneling. He is making every pitch look the same out of his hand. It has been spectacular to see the improvement of Sandy Alcantara. The Marlins need to find a way to pay him. And especially after the Marlins decided to let Starling Marte go. And again, I know I talked about the trade. I like the trade. But if you're not going to pay Marte, then you need to put that money towards Sandy Alcantara. And I think that that's exactly what they're going to do in this offseason. But another talking point that I didn't even think I was going to get to in this podcast that I have to float and probably tease for the next podcast is what do the Marlins do at third base now? I like Brian Anderson. I really think he's capable of being a really solid above average third baseman with the defense he brings and the offense that he's capable of. But the injuries have just limited him and the Marlins may need to look a different direction long term because that's just such a premium position that the Marlins are stricken for offense. They need to be able to find that. There's no real upgrades in the free agent market at third. The Marlins do need some other places to address. So it's going to be interesting to see how they handle that side of things as well. But back to Sandy. The equation of success here is pretty simple. Walk rate is the lowest of his career by a decent margin. Strikeout rate is the highest of his career. So that's always going to bode well, right? He's getting more ground balls than he ever has as well. So more swings and misses, less walks. And when guys are making contact, they are hitting it in the ground. That is a great equation. He's comfortable pitching to contact because he knows he gets a lot of weak contact. And one of the big things that he has done this year is he is throwing the changeup more and he's really phased out that curveball. He rarely ever throws it. He'll mix it in maybe once a game just to make you think about it. And that's fine. He has toned down the sinker and the four seamer a little bit in favor of a bit more of the slider and a bit more of the changeup. So the confidence in his off-speed stuff has really had hitters off balance, had hitters guessing, and then he's still going to dial it up to 100 and blow it by you when he needs to. That's been great because last year he was going to the sinker about 35% of the time, and it was just a little bit of an over-reliance on it. The other big thing, though, from Sandy that we can't overlook is that he has seen an average jump in his fastball 
by 1.5 miles per hour on the sinker and more than one mile per hour on the four-seamer. He's averaging 98 miles per hour on the four-seamer and he's averaging 97.6 miles per hour on the sinker. So he's seen a velo bump, he has seen his command improve, and he's also seeing more confidence or enjoying more confidence in his secondary stuff. This is so real. It's not that you needed me to tell you that these improvements are real, but they are so real. The batting average, on each of his pitches. Sinker, 228. Changeup, 214. Slider, 193. Four-seamer, 252. Like, come on. Not one of his pitches is a weakness right now. There's not one pitch you want to see as a hitter. Not only is he going to the slider more, the whiff rate has jumped by 5%. The whiff rate has improved on his sinker as well, which makes sense because it's legitimately a turbo sinker times a million. It's the hardest sinker I've ever seen in my life, aside from any relievers like Jordan Hicks or whatever. But this is a starter, and this is a guy that goes deep into ball games and throws 114 pitches and doesn't get tired. He's a horse. He's an absolute horse, and he's only going to get better. The craziest thing about all this is he just turned 26 the other day. Happy birthday, Sandy. He's 26. He's so young. There's just so much going for him right now. And damn it, I'm going to bring up Jacob deGrom again. You know how old Jacob deGrom was when he made his debut in the big leagues? 26. 26. So right now, Sandy Alcantara's age was when Jacob deGrom was just breaking into the bigs. So Sandy now getting a lot of experience, a lot of polish, learning his stuff even more. Now Sandy at 26 years old already has tons of innings under his belt, an all-star season, another season that should have been an all-star season this year if he had pitched this way a little bit earlier, and already a very good career that has solidified himself as a top 20 pitcher in the game, and he is where he is right now is when Jacob deGrom just started. So not to say that, again, he is Jacob deGrom, but he's in a really good position. He's in a really, really good spot, and the Marlins should lock him up while they can, and I think they should have done it earlier, and it's going to just get more expensive by the day, but hopefully they'll find a way to do that. I want to talk about Jazz Chisholm real quickly as well, because I've seen some interestingly divisive opinions on Jazz, which is so surprising to me. The Marlins finally have an offensive prospect and an offensive rookie who has held his own. Yes, he's been up and down, but at the end of the day, he's got a 745 OPS. He's got 15 home runs in 416 plate appearances, and he's swiped 19 backs. Is that a rookie of the year performance? No. But geez, we have seen no Marlins offensive prospects perform well, and Jazz Chisholm has been a breath of fresh air. Yes, there are some inconsistencies. He's a freaking rookie who is super tooled up with some swing and miss concerns, but he has shown that he can be productive despite those swing and miss concerns. I still think that he has been more impressive than I thought he would be in terms of making consistent contact, in terms of just hitting lefties, hitting righties, and just being a more well-rounded hitter. I I thought there'd be more issues, but there are some things that he needs to improve. And of course, that's going to be any rookie, but I do think that he's going to do that. Look at what he looks like this year versus what we saw at the end of 2020. He is so much better. And I think there's a lot that he learned from this season that he's going to continue to build off of. He has no problem with fastballs. We've seen that. He can catch up to the heater. At times, the elevated heater has been an issue for him. But the more that I watch, I realize that the elevated heater becomes an issue when he's thinking more about the breaking ball because the breaking ball has been the bane of his existence this year. He's fine left-on-left heater. He's fine righty heaters that are 100 miles an hour. He's fine lefty heaters that are 100 miles an hour. He took Jose Alvarado deep on 100 miles per hour elevated. He knows when to hunt the fastball and when to just absolutely crush it because 
when he's hunting a fastball, he, you're in trouble. He takes advantage of hitters' counts really well. Breaking balls, they've been an issue for him, and this is something that I think is half pitch recognition and a little bit of the just swing plane. He has an incredibly steep swing. We know that. But it doesn't mean it can't play. I just think he needs to make some small tweaks, some small adjustments about the way he attacks the baseball. And I think that's all going to be taken care of. But right now on breaking balls, he's not hitting great uh, so far in his career. And this season, he is a 193 hitter against breaking balls, which he's just starting to see more and more as the season endures. He's a 300 hitter against fastballs. 11 of his 15 home runs have come off of fastballs. So it's not a surprise to see him having a lot of success and starting to see a lot more breaking balls. And I think that when we see the issue, it's more of the barrel at the point of contact. When he's a bit more out front, the barrel can go in and out of the zone a little bit quickly with him because of the steepness of his swing. With a breaking ball, you might catch it out front. And when he's in and out of the zone a bit quicker, he's just missing under these quite a bit. And I don't really have too much concern about that. I'm more so concerned on how the tunnel is going to affect him. And I know I've used that word several times in here to talk about the pitchers, but I've seen the way good pitchers attack him with that type of mentality. High fastball, then vertical breaking ball. That's really the problem for him because he's either keying for one and not adjusting to the other. And I think the steepness of his swing, excuse me, uh, does kind of leave him susceptible to that a little bit. So he's going to have to just feel it out a little bit, make those tweaks, and I think he's going to get there. I look at a Cody Bellinger, not a Cody Bellinger this year, not even a Cody Bellinger last year because I don't want to compare him to that. But they have similar swing paths back when Cody Bellinger was going well. And even when Bellinger was going well, we go back to 2019, 327 hitter against the heater, 242 hitter against the breaking ball, and a launch angle that is much more high against that breaking ball, meaning he was missing under it as well. It was the same thing throughout most of his career, especially as he started to hit the wall a little bit. It's a pretty swing and it can work, but you really have to sort out how you're going to attack the baseball and have your approach ironed out and sound and know how guys are going to pitch you if you're going to have that kind of steep swing. But Jazz has shown how it works, how effortless he can tap into that power. And he's also shown at times that he can go the other way. He can spray the ball all over. He can beat a ball into the ground and leg one out. So I'm okay with some inconsistencies. I would rather him roll over, frankly, than pop up. And we've seen him do that more with the heaters, where at times he will roll over on the heater. The ground ball rate's 50%. So I'd almost rather him roll over a bit more frequently on the on the breaking balls than pop them up. But you also don't want to compromise that power because power is still going to be a big part of his game and it's going to make the strikeouts a bit more palatable. But at a 28% K rate this year, I think that's going to continue to improve. He's not walking a zero amount. 7% about just a hair below average. I think we'll see that jump a little bit more next year. If he hovers around 8%, especially as a leadoff hitter, that is fine. If he can keep the strikeout rate around 25 to 28%, which I think is going to improve after this year being 28%, that is not a bad sign. I would take this year as a massive victory from Jazz Chisholm, and I think he's going to continue to improve. And we've seen so many flashes of what he's capable of, and I think he's going to be a really special player for the Marlins in the long term. Speaking of players for the Marlins in the long term, some prospects that have really stood out as of late. I can't start with anybody other than Cameron Meisner. Cameron Meisner earns his promotion up to double A, and he has not slowed down there either. Since August 1st, Cameron Meisner is slashing 306, 395, 514, 
It's a 909 OPS. He is striking out 23% of the time, walking 10% of the time, 149 WRC+. That's between high A and now double A. This is a really good development because as I talked about in the past, when I got to go see Meisner in person, I'm watching this guy struggle and I just don't know why. I really couldn't put my finger on it other than just approach and pitch wreck because his swing looked good. Everything looked fine. He wasn't even taking bad swings at baseballs. It just, there was no production there. He just was not producing. And that was one of the few times where I'm watching a hitter and I'm watching a hitter who's really struggling and I just could not wrap my finger around why. And that's why I said, it's only a matter of time where I think he's going to figure it out. And he fully has, he fully has figured it out at this point. And he has looked much, much better. Peyton Burdick also hit one 440 yesterday as well. Talk about somebody that has figured it out. But Meisner, he has some things going for him that have me probably more excited about him than Blade at this point, not just because he's hitting 306 since August 1st, but because he's got way more going for him in terms of the tools. I'd argue at this point, I don't even think it's an argument, the data would back it up that I've seen, he has more raw power than Blade in terms of his exit velos and now just in terms of his production. He's obviously a better athlete, better outfielder, capable of playing center if he needs to. This is somebody that's probably going to leap now Blade next too. I said it's hard to make the uh, argument for Blade over Burdick. I think it's impossible to make the argument over Blade or for Blade over Burdick. And now, if Meisner continues, by the end of this season, you might struggle to be able to make the argument for Blade over Cameron Meisner, especially if he continues to have this success at the double A level. This would be a huge boost for the fish if all of a sudden Cameron Meisner, who's 6'4, 220 with plus speed plus raw power is finally tapping into all of those crazy tools this is very very good news for the fish so Burdick a great game yesterday Meisner continues to rake and then a great start in double a as well from Zach McCambly McCambly just another quality quality double a start yes he got the L technically speaking but he goes five innings he only gives up four hits, three earned runs on a pair of homers. And that's the one thing to watch with McCambly right now. It's the only way he's really getting burned at the moment is by the long ball. That's really just been it. Other than that, he has been really darn good. He doesn't even give up hits in a huge volume. It's more just the homers that are burning him because at times that fastball can flatten out, especially when he leaves it up. But the breaking ball is ridiculous. He's starting to find a better feel for the changeup as well. Nine Ks in those five innings, and he only walks two. He has looked really good over his last, what is that? One, two, three, four, five, six outings. He has walked two or less. That's very encouraging, especially going into double A with the tighter zone. And you got to be a bit more careful with these hitters. We know how good these hitters are in double A. Great pitchers, great hitters. The talent level in double A is as good as ever. He has been great. And I think this is just another boost, another exciting iteration of this Marlins 2020 draft class, which I can't lie, they absolutely killed it with that draft class. Just absolutely killed it. And aside from July for Zach McCambly, he's been spectacular the entire season. 3-4-6 ERA in May, that was in high A. 2-4-8 ERA in June, that was in high A. First gets to move up to double A and struggles in July, 8-8-4 ERA, then back to 3-9-5 in August and back to a 4 ERA in September. It's really just been one bad month for him when he first adjusted to double A. Kyle Nicholas has been spectacular as well, especially to have both of those guys and Jake Eater and Max Meyer. You had four of your pitchers 
make their way to double A, either start the season in double A or make their way up there at some point pretty early in the season, given that they are first year pros as pitchers and considered a little bit raw, especially Nicholas. Huge win, I think, for the draft class this year. Of course, tragic to see Jake Eater go down with the elbow injury and we wish him a speedy recovery. Not going to get to see him next year, but still just a phenomenal year. A lot to be proud of for Jake Eater and a lot to be excited about for Eater and for the Marlins organization and for Marlins fans for when he returns. Some more in the weeds types of guys that I've been really impressed with as of late. How can I not talk about Antonio Velez? I had a request to mention Antonio Velez on the podcast and I've got to. I've got to. He has been great. Undrafted free agent, signed and has been great for the Fish so far in his high A games. 20 games out there, 11 starts. He had gone 81 innings. He's not a guy that's going to strike out a ton, but I actually talked to Jeff Conine about Velez because he went out to go see Griff play, and I texted Jeff and said, man, Velez has been great in this outing, and what do you see? And he just said, gamer gamer. He's just mixes it up. He attacks hitters and he's just tough. The fastball is not going to light up the radar gun. It's more in the 90, 91 range. So that is interesting, but the off speed really plays for him and he is polished. Really, he's 24 years old and shows a good feel. Worst case scenario here, you're looking at maybe a reliever. I think there's a Dan Castano type of projection here, but I think there's some better secondary stuff and a little bit better command. I'm going to make it a point to watch Velez's next start so I can really talk about the stuff and talk about what I saw from his stuff. But I can tell you that Jeff Conine came away thinking, man, this guy was when I told Jeff Conine that he was an undrafted guy, Jeff texted me, no way. I expected him to be maybe a fourth, fifth round guy that was an underslot senior or something like that. No, he didn't even get drafted. So that just shows you big league vet surprised that Velez was undrafted. So that's obviously a good sign. 24 years old. I'm sure the Marlins are going to work kind of quickly with him. And they've done just that. He's already in double A and through his 12 innings in double A he's only surrendered one run. So overall been really good. Strikeouts again aren't going to be a huge part of his game, but he gets a lot of weak contact and he gets guys out front and uncomfortable. And I'm curious to see how that continues against higher level competition. That's always the question for guys that don't rack up the swings and misses and maybe don't have the craziest stuff in the world. Back to the offensive side of things, by the way. Somebody that I talked about right after I went and watched the Marlins low A team Jupiter Hammerheads play, somebody that really stood out to me was Bennett Hostetler, just drafted in this last class for the Marlins in the teens rounds. But Hostetler, I saw him a little bit in the Cape two years ago, and then I saw him again in this, it was his first game actually, his first professional game. He is another guy, total gamer. Total, total gamer. And I have a feeling that the Marlins front office, you know, they want to even it out a little bit, especially with a lot of the high-risk guys that they've gotten. They want some grinders. Bennett Hostetler is a grinder. I think he's going to be similar to that Brigman profile, but he could be better offensively. He's younger. He's a little bit more athletic, and he can play all over the infield. I think there's more power there for Hostetler as well. Some of the exit velos I've seen from him have been better than Brigman. Obviously, the Marlins don't want to call up Brigman for whatever reason. Hopefully, they don't give Hostetler the same uh, kind of treatment. Hostetler, I would say, has more power there. And I just love his feel for his approach. He knows himself as a hitter. He has a lot of confidence in his feel for the barrel. He spoils tough pitches. He drives the ball to all fields. He's a tough guy to strike out. He takes his walks. I'm a big fan of his. I really think that he could turn into that type of utility player a little bit better than Brigman. And who knows, maybe he can even turn into a starting second baseman type or utility player type. 
Love what I've seen from him so far in limited action. I talked about on the last podcast, Lewin Diaz. He's been red hot in AAA. Super encouraging there. It's going to be interesting to see how the Marlins handle the first base position for next year. And Victor Mesa Jr., only 19 years old. The man is heating up. He is starting to really hit the baseball. I think there needs to be some small tweaks with his swing. He's getting away with a little bit of movement and a little bit of length right now, but he has made some adjustments that I think have trended towards the right direction with his swing, and we're seeing those results. And he's putting up some pretty crazy batted ball data. We're not seeing it totally translate into power yet. Only four home runs this year, but 19 years old and has been playing quite well against older competition. Excited to see how he continues to develop as well. It should be fun in the offseason. The Marlins have had a lot of prospects improve this year, and especially on the pitching side, it'll be interesting to see who the Marlins decide to deal. But a strong finish across the board for Marlins prospects would be a great development given that they're going to be aggressive this year. So anyway, a lot of these prospects can boost their stock. That's going to be good for the fish because I expect them to be pretty busy in this offseason with trades. That'll do it for today's episode. I hope you have a great Friday. I hope you have a great weekend, and I look forward to talking Marlins with you next week.